0: Okay, good evening and welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Uh, Tonight we'll be back in chapter 3. We'll be studying verses 2, 3, and 4. But before we get started with that, let's just do a quick review of what we studied last time. Uh, Last week I dedicated our entire study to verse 1, in which we were introduced to a new character in this story, Haman. Haman is clearly the villain of the story. He plays a a very important and very specific role in God's unfolding plan and purpose for the Book of Esther. We learned that he was an Agagite, a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag, And that this fact plays a a really significant part in the story of Esther. The Amalekites were a particularly hostile and ruthless enemy to the Israelites. And God judged them. He he judged their, their particular disregard for him and their complete lack of mercy and humanity and at a certain point he reminded Israel of the the heinous crimes committed by the Amalekites and when he had taken them into the promised land and given them rest there he commanded them to attack the Amalekites but his command if you remember it was very very specific he told them to he told them to attack the Amalekites, and to blot out the very memory of them from under heaven, to just completely destroy them. And Israel failed. They failed to fully obey God's command. And instead, what they did is they allowed the uh, Amalekites to survive and to continue. And that led to ongoing and continuous conflict between Israel and the Amalekites from that day forward. And then now, in the days of Esther, what we're seeing is Israel coming face to face with the the downline consequences of their own failure to fully obey the Lord. Now, in tonight's study, we're going to see Mordecai, standing up to Haman, standing up to him in a way no one else in Persia was willing to do. And this is because Mordecai, being a Jew and Haman being a, a descendant of an Amalekite king, Mordecai had a, an inbred, a natural, a very understandable dislike for Haman. But what we're going to see is that even an even greater force than that driving Mordecai's willingness to stand up to Haman the way he does is his total devotion to the Lord, the God of Israel. So let's, um, if you want to turn with me to uh, Esther chapter 3, let's read together verses 2, 3, and 4. And then we'll do a verse-by-verse study. So Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. says, And all the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they had spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them, that he was a Jew. Okay, so verse two introduces us to two very important aspects of the developing conflict between Mordecai and Haman. First, that the king had issued a command regarding how all of the other officials in the king's service were to interact with Haman. They were all to bow down and pay homage each time they came into contact with Haman. So it's important for us to understand exactly what this means, to bow down and pay homage. Now first, bowing down, it refers specifically to the gesture of bowing. Or, I mean, the word can actually also mean kneeling, but I do think that in this context, he's referring to bowing down. And this is symbolically, it's acknowledging one's own lower level of status or social ranking before a superior. So you always see an inferior bowing or bowing down to a superior, never the other way around. Now, to pay homage, this word typically means to prostrate oneself. That is, What that means is to lay face down on the ground, literally nose in the dirt, face down on the ground. Okay, now let me give a a brief explanation here. Culturally, when it comes to bowing, uh, bowing down before someone, the depth of one's bow was linked to the level of honor the one being bowed down to deserved, okay? So the higher the honor deserved, the lower the bow. You've probably seen this depicted in movies and shows where people bow and you see different levels of of bowing down. Now, to prostrate oneself is the lowest possible bow, right? I mean, if you're laying on the ground, face to the ground, it's the lowest possible bow, which is symbolizing the highest level of honor being given. Now, in most cultures, that type of bowing down, laying prostrate, was reserved for the worship of deity. In ancient Israelite culture, this was a a degree of expressing honor that was reserved for God alone. For an Israelite to bow down before another human being in this way to prostrate himself before another human being would be considered to be idolatrous. It would be considered direct violation of God's command to worship no person or object other than the Lord God himself. And actually, the the Hebrew word that's used in this verse, it's a key word of worship that we see throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to read verses 16 through 19. It says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, By loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods May live. Now I read this passage because the same Hebrew word translated worship in this passage, it's the same Hebrew word that's translated in Esther chapter 3, verse 2, that's uh, translated to pay homage. Okay. So we see in this verse, Esther 3 2. That all of the king's officials, they've complied with this command. They're doing it. Whenever Haman would pass by, each of these officials would obey the king by bowing down and paying homage, showing worship to Haman. All that is except one. Which leads us to the second very important aspect of this developing conflict between Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai refused to do this. So for many of the king's officials, this may have been, probably was, nothing more than just another required action to stay in the good graces of their king. And You know, many of the requirements made by the king were most likely nothing more than just that, just his own eccentricities. But this, this command was different, at least for Mordecai. You see here in Mordecai's refusal, he demonstrates two key elements of his character. One the depth of his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, and two, his unwavering devotion to God. Mordecai was clearly familiar with this Deuteronomy passage that I just read, as well as many other Old Testament passages that clearly forbid the worship of any other gods. So he refused, Mordecai refused, absolutely refused to participate in this act of worship directed to Haman. Mordecai refused to worship any false god, any false god, even the king of Persia himself or his second in command. Now the the wording, In this Deuteronomy passage, it demonstrates, and this is why I chose that particular passage, it really demonstrates how important it is to God for his people to be faithful to him in this area, to not to worship anyone or anything but himself. And Mordecai didn't take this command or the degree of importance that God puts on it. He didn't take that lightly. He didn't take it lightly at all. Remember that Mordecai's refusal, it wasn't just an act against Haman. It was a direct and open defiance to the king of Persia. Remember, the king had commanded all of his officials to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Now, if you remember, we studied in in great detail in chapter one, how the king responded to his own wife when she disobeyed his command. Do you remember that? So, for any of the king's officials to openly and repeatedly disobey the king, was most likely a death penalty offense. I mean, it's not explicit in the passage, but like I said, most likely death penalty offense. So by Mordecai taking the stand that he did and not bowing down to Haman, not paying homage to him, not worshiping him or showing an outward sign of worship to Haman, Mordecai was literally taking his life in his own hands. He knew the scriptures. He understood the scriptures. And therefore, he understood the importance that God placed on faithful, full obedience to his commands. Weighing disobedience to the king against disobeying. And disappointing the God of Israel, even when facing death, what it does is it it really, it exposes a person's true heart orientation to God. Mordecai was clearly a faithful and obedient servant of the Lord's. Now, we, as, as believers, as born again Christians, I think that we're able to see and understand Mordecai's perspective. You know, how each one of us would respond to that type of, of situation, I can't speak to right now. But I think that we can all understand his perspective. But the other king's officials, They didn't have that understanding. They were confused. And they naturally questioned in their own minds the wisdom of Mordecai's decision and his motivation. Let's look at verse 3. It says, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now, in back in our study of chapter 2, verse 19, we learned something about this phrase, the king's gate. Let me just do a quick review. In the ancient uh, Eastern world, the term king's gate was used to, to, to describe the location where the the legal trials and the, the judiciary hearings were conducted and where justice was dispensed. So the fact that Mordecai was sitting at the gate, it indicates that he held some type of official position in the, the Persian Empire's uh, judicial system. And I, I remind us of that because since Mordecai himself was one of those officials who served at the king's gate, this reference to the king's servants, what's being described here is Mordecai's fellow judicial officials, his peers, the guys that he worked with every day, right? And so they undoubtedly noticed day after day, as Haman walked by and all of them would bow down to him and pay homage to him, they undoubtedly noticed, like I said, day after day after day, that Mordecai didn't. He refused to. So at some point in time, they spoke to him and they asked him about it. Now why exactly or specifically they spoke to him, their specific reason behind the question, it's it's not disclosed to us here, just that they spoke to him. But in the original language, in in the Hebrew, there's a little bit more detail given to us in their question, and it helps us to understand what they might have been thinking In asking this question. The wording of the question, if you look at it in the the original Hebrew, it indicates two very distinct thoughts behind the question. First, it's very obvious. They're asking him why he's not obeying the king's command by bowing down and paying homage to Haman. They were perplexed they didn't understand it and they were seeking a reason for his behavior so it's it's just what you see on the surface why aren't you doing this we don't understand why aren't you obeying the king but what's not as obvious in the in the English translation is that they were also strongly urging him to comply so they they were interested in In why he wasn't complying, but they were also urging him to begin complying. Stop refusing it. Stop doing what you're doing. Okay, so they, the rest of the officials there, they apparently had no problem with obeying the king's command, bowing down, showing this outward sign of worship to Haman, but clearly they had some concern over the fact that Mordecai was not doing it. Now, notice or let me just remind you of the the look at the wording in their question. They weren't asking Mordecai why he wasn't giving Haman honor and respect. The focus of their question is they asked why are you transgressing the king's command? Okay, now transgress, it literally means to pass over or to pass through it means to ignore just completely ignore and that's what seems to be their concern that Mordecai was ignoring the king's command now we don't know you know exactly why okay it could have been you know Uh, maybe they're involving themselves here in in Mordecai's refusal to comply. Maybe it was to safeguard their own reputation or possibly even to protect their well-being. You know, maybe they were concerned with being mistaken, one of them being mistaken for for Mordecai, for the one who's actually refusing to obey the king. Or maybe they were concerned that Haman would notice that Mordecai wasn't bowing down. They did. They noticed it. They might have been concerned that, that Haman would notice and report it to the king. And that if he did, he might just simply group them all together. You know, He might give a report to the king, something along the lines of, hey, the officials at the gate, they're not showing me the honor that you've commanded them to do. They're not obeying you, king. So you know we don't know exactly and and really whatever their personal reasons were whatever the specific reasons were we can be sure of this and i believe this is really what we're meant to see the lord was directing the circumstances the lord was displaying his his sovereignty his providence even though he's not specifically mentioned in the passage, I'm convinced that the Lord prompted their concern. The Lord prompted their concern that Mordecai was not obeying the king. And he prompted them to report this situation. And he prompted them to report it, not to the king, but to Haman. And this is all to achieve his greater purpose, for the really for the entire book of Esther. And that is, to instill in his people the hope and the confidence that he's always there, that he's always at work in their lives, even in difficult circumstances, even when we don't, maybe we don't think he's there. Maybe we don't feel that he's there. He always is. Okay, let's take a look at, um, at verse four now. Says, and when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So here we're told that they, the, the king's servants who were at the, the king's gate, they spoke to Mordecai about this day after day. This means that for some significant period of time, we don't know exactly how long, but some significant period of time that they would talk to Mordecai. They would ask him daily, every single day, why do you transgress the king's command? Why are you continuing to transgress the king's command. Every day, every time Haman would pass by, they saw Mordecai not bowing down to him. They would speak to him with, every time they would observe this, they would speak to him with this same twofold statement or or twofold question. Why are you not obeying the king? They're making a request for a reason. We don't understand it. Doesn't make any sense to us. Why do you continue to do this? And at the same time, they're urging him, please stop doing that and start obeying the king. Just bow down to Haman and pay him homage as we have been commanded to do. They're urging him to change his ways and to comply with the king's command. But regardless of how much or how many times they implored him, Mordecai refused to comply, continued to refuse to comply. So after after some period of time, after however many days this went on, we don't know, but However many, they approached Haman, and they informed him. They informed Haman of Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. And we're told in this verse their their motivation behind informing Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. The word translated stand, it literally means to stand or to stand firm. So basically, the the, the phrase means that they wanted, to, they wanted to find out if if Haman was going to allow Mordecai to continue not bowing down, not paying homage to him. They wanted to find out, are you going to allow this? Or are you going to report it to the king? Are you going to do something about it? Or are you going to allow it to continue to happen? And then the final uh, section or part of this verse says, for he had told them that he was a Jew. This is a key phrase, a key phrase in the unfolding conflict between Mordecai and Haman. This phrase is Mordecai's declaration to those who were asking him, why are you doing this? Why are you not bowing down before Haman and paying him homage? It's his declaration to why he chose to transgress the king's command, why he chose to literally take his life in his own hands. And in in his, his, uh, it's his his definitive answer to that question: Why, why are you doing this? Well, as a Jew, he could not bow down to Haman and pay him the king's required homage. He couldn't. He could not show the honor to a man to a another human being that was due to God alone. Mordecai could not worship Haman. And that's what he was being asked to do. That's what he was being commanded to do, is to worship Haman, to show these outward signs of worship to Haman. So Mordecai, he could not obey the king Without denying his own faith in the God of Israel. You see, these are are two mutually exclusive things. You cannot truly worship God and worship any false God in any way or to any degree. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. Paul writes, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. These are two mutually exclusive things. If Mordecai bowed down to Haman, if he paid him homage as the king had commanded, he would be compromising his faithfulness to the Lord as a Jew. And that's why he refused. That's why he could not do what the king was commanding him to do. Now, this faithfulness potentially came at a tremendous cost. I mean, as far as, as Mordecai knew, it very well could have cost him his very life. He didn't know How things were going to play out. We know the end of the story, right? He didn't at the time. He didn't know how things were going to play out. So his obedience to the Lord, I mean, not to King Ahasuerus, but his obedience to the Lord, his faithfulness to the Lord, put him in at least potential, seriously potential, grave danger. And just think about it for a moment. He could have very easily avoided that danger. He could have simply followed the king's command by bowing down and paying homage to Haman and continued to worship and serve the Lord. Right? He could have done that. I mean, the king wasn't commanding him to renounce his allegiance to the God of Israel just to publicly perform an act of worship to Haman. But you see it's the and part of that phrase that Mordecai understood to be incompatible with true obedience to the Lord. Like I said, these are these are two mutually exclusive things. There is no and. You cannot worship God and Worship a false God, mutually exclusive. Mordecai, uh, he understood the, the, the principle that we discussed in our last study, partial obedience. Remember what we talked about? Partial obedience isn't obedience at all. Partial obedience is disobedience. And Mordecai, he was committed to full obedience to the Lord. He refused to combine obedience, worshiping the Lord, with disobedience, worshiping Haman. He refused to combine those two things. And he was willing to endure whatever the cost may be in order to maintain his allegiance, his faithfulness to the Lord and to the Lord Alone, He would not. He refused to deny his faithfulness. He refused to compromise his faithfulness. He refused to dilute his faithfulness by mixing his allegiances. To worship Haman publicly while continuing to worship the Lord privately. So Mordecai was faced with this, and he was ready, he was willing, and he was able to stand firm for the Lord, even when the world was insisting that he bow down to it rather than to the Lord. He stood firm for the Lord, regardless of the cost to himself. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time in some uh, application of this uh, principle. There's a, there's a life principle at work here that we just can't ignore or overlook. It's a principle I, I, I'm convinced that the Lord wants us to learn, to understand, and to apply in our daily lives. And it's this principle of standing firm for the Lord— In the midst of pressure, any kind of pressure, to compromise. Now, okay, Mordecai faced the potential of losing his life if he remained faithful to the Lord. If he fully obeyed God's command to worship no other gods, he could lose his life. Okay, now, we will most likely, no one here will most likely ever be in a circumstance where standing firm for the Lord will cost us our lives, right? I mean, realistically, we we'll, most likely we'll never face that. But here's the thing, this principle isn't limited to that. It's not limited to losing your life if you stay faithful to the Lord. We do face many circumstances where standing standing firm for the Lord will cost us. Maybe not our lives, but it will cost us something. Most of the circumstances we encounter are not choices of, of maintaining our allegiance to the Lord or rejecting our allegiance to the Lord. But the thing is, is that we do live in a world that's filled with opportunities to compromise, right? And these these circumstances uh, uh, that tempt us, there are circumstances that tempt us to partial obedience, to compromise. And I'm, I'm talking about more than just neutral opportunities, Okay, we live in a world that's constantly pushing us, pulling us, and trying to influence us, force us to compromise. And unfortunately, many times that, that, that happens or that takes place even within the wider body of Christ. I think that's really unfortunate. We need to remember that we're called to be a light in a dark world. We're called to influence, we should, the church should be influencing our society and culture in the ways of the Lord. But it seems that, it it seems like it's the other way around. It seems that, that the society and the culture has a greater influence on the church than the church has on the society and culture, unfortunately. We are, as believers, we're plagued with, with pressure from all around us to compromise. Uh, you know, again, for us, full obedience instead of compromise, it, it, it probably will never mean giving up our lives, it will probably most likely never come to that cost for us. But many times it will mean giving up things, giving up things that we want, giving up things that we desire, giving up things that we could have and still continue to serve the Lord right? See, here's the thing though. It would just mean that we would be serving him more our way and less his way. That's the bottom line. So I've got just a couple of examples here or application examples. Um, It's it's a short list. Uh, uh, Full obedience to the Lord might mean for some of us to give up greater income or what, um, what the world considers to be um, uh, financial security, okay? I remember when the Lord directed the path of my life into full-time ministry. Um, I came face-to-face with the reality of a much lower income than I was accustomed to. I mean, you know, I never made tons of money, but like I said, I, I came face to face with that reality of making less money. It, you know, the, the, the inability to have all of the luxuries, well, you know, the luxuries that I, that I was accustomed to and the luxuries that the world was constantly telling me that I wanted That the world was constantly telling me that I needed, and that the world was constantly telling me that I deserved. And you know what? I was tempted. I was tempted to give in to the idea of ignoring the path to which the Lord was directing me, because after all, I could still serve the Lord, right? I mean I can, I, can, I can still serve the Lord I can still I can have this and continue to serve the Lord, I would just be serving him more my way and a whole lot less his way. But I understood, praise God, that partial obedience isn't obedience at all it's disobedience. and I was committed. Was committed then, and I'm fully committed still to this day to full obedience to the Lord. Now, I know I, I, I run a risk of, of sharing, you know, personal experience like that. Please understand, I'm not complaining or grumbling in any way. Zero, none at all. Believe me, I, wouldn't, I would do the same thing over again, over again, over again. The Lord has blessed me and my family greater than I ever could have blessed myself. Both in this life, in what we have now, and in my life, in our lives to come in eternity. You see, that's really the, the, the whole point of my story. That's the essence of full obedience to the Lord. It's always the best way, always. Okay, now, uh, full obedience to the Lord for for others might mean not living in a geographic location that you would choose over where the Lord has placed you. you. You know the old adage, the grass always seems so much greener somewhere else, right? And especially in our current economic and political climate, it seems that so many believers seem to be looking for a better place to live. You know, things like states that have more conservative political and social views, or areas where you can get so much more for your dollar, you know, places where there's less crime, better places to live, etc., cetera, et cetera, all of that type of stuff. And hey, don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way saying that there's, there's inherently anything wrong with those things. And then after all, can't you serve God anywhere? Can't you just go wherever you want and still serve God. Well, yes, you can. You absolutely can. It would just be serving more your way and a whole lot less his way. So this is the way I see it. When it comes to where we live as God's people, what should be our first concern? I think our first concern would be where God's placed us, where he wants us. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We're all very familiar with this, this verse. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has prepared works for us from before creation. He's created works for us to accomplish. They're specific works, specific for each one of us. It seems to me that where we choose to live is a big part of that, that it's going to be a big part of that. I think it comes down to where I want to live or where God wants me to live, where God has placed me. Um... Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The implication is that it's a dark house, right? So as God's lights, are we meant to shine in a dark world? Aren't we meant to shine in a dark world? Or are we to to seek out to look for and move to the most well-lit places that we can find where all of the, of the lights are congregated. Let's move there and leave the darkness to move to where the other lights are. Well, I don't think so. No. We're to, take a, uh, we're to make a stand for the Lord and be where he places us. Even when the world is trying to convince us that the grass is greener somewhere else. Here's a trustworthy statement. And I believe this with all of my heart. There's no better place to live anywhere in the world than right where the Lord places you. Wherever the Lord has you, directs you, wherever he wants you, there is no better place in the world for you to be, regardless of the social, political, or economic climate in that place. If you want to accomplish all the Lord means for you to accomplish, all that he's prepared for you beforehand and receive all of the eternal rewards that he intends for you, then I say this, be where the Lord wants you to be. Again, that's the essence of full obedience to the Lord. It's always the best way. I've got one more example. One last, last example. My last example is what local church we commit to. Okay, now, this seems to me to be another of those areas where so many believers give very little, if any, regard to where the Lord intends for us to worship and to serve him. The church seems to, seems to have adopted the, the world's view of prioritizing your own desires at the top of your list. And, you know, I, I, I'm seeing this more and more. There seems to even be a loss of concern as to whether or not the place one attends is even a, an actual church, whether or not it's, it's, it's even a real church. You know, there are biblical baseline elements of true local lampstands that the Lord describes in his word. He has defined for us, what a real church is, what a true church is. But then even considering that, even within true churches, real churches, the Lord can, and I believe does, direct us to where He wants us to worship Him. And I'm, I'm, I'm not in any way saying or trying to build a case that we have no freedom within these areas. But At the same time, uh, the Lord does direct us. And I, I believe that we need to consider that, strongly consider that, consider that as our first priority to be where he wants us to be, to go to the church, to commit to the church where he wants us to serve him. Think about this, where he has placed those good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that important? If he has has placed those works in a specific church for us to walk in them, shouldn't it be important that we go, that we commit to that church? I think so. And where he intends us to grow Where's the best place that we're gonna grow? Where he wants us to be. So I say this, if you want to mature, if you want to grow, and if you want to really succeed in all the ways that the Lord intends for you, if you wanna be fully sanctified, be where the Lord wants you to be. Again, it's the essence of full obedience to the Lord. It's always, always the best way. So these are just three examples, three examples of many areas in each of our lives where God does direct us and where we have opportunities to compromise. So I'll end with this. In these and in all other areas, our allegiance to the Lord requires us to stand firm for the Lord when the world insists that we bow to it rather than to the Lord. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so very, very much for this wonderful example in Mordecai to stand firm for you in all things. I pray that you will help us to always see that your way is the best way in all of our circumstances. Even when the world is telling us that another way is better, or even when we think that our perspective, our way is better, please help us to always see that your way is the best way for us. Amen.